0: Welcome to Music History Monday for February first, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Pretty Much the Worst. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash Robert Greenberg Music, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate. Review and bloviate four to six times a week. There are times I crave spicy, I mean really spicy food. Speaking of which, I knew a guy at university from San Antonio. We belonged to the same eating club, which was our version of fraternities, who put Tabasco sauce on everything. Cereal, peanut butter sandwiches, vanilla ice cream, I kid you not, everything. Next to Berto, who was a professional grade consumer of capsaicin, I am merely a hobbyist. Then again, I never saw Berto consume a Carolina Reaper or a Trinidad Scorpion hot peppers that both exceed 2 million Scoville heat units, making them 40% as hot as military-grade pepper spray. But back to me and my occasional but necessary consumption of serrano peppers, Vietnamese chili garlic sauce, and Calabrian chili peppers. Do I like having my mouth turned into a flaming pit of hell? No. Well, but maybe. Do I enjoy having the mucous membranes in my sinuses go haywire? Not particularly, but... Is it fun having my eyes tear and turn red? Um do I like when all of this happens? And now the awful truth. I don't just like it. I love it. And there it is. For me, when consuming really spicy food, the line between pleasure and pain disappears entirely. They become one and the same. In a phrase not as kinky as I know it sounds, it hurts so good. Please, I am not by nature a masochist, though I do have a fairly high threshold to pain. So says a typical guy who has gratefully never had to experience childbirth. Nevertheless, it seems to me that many of us happily engage in behaviors that combine in equal parts pleasure and pain, eating very spicy food, indulging in extremely strenuous exercise, pursuing a career in music, watching Gilligan's Island reruns, listening to punk rock. Like the ingestion of extremely spicy food, I generally recommend consuming punk rock in small, controlled doses. Even so, you might rightly ask, why bother consuming punk rock in the first place? It is indeed a worthy question. I would suggest three reasons. First, as an intriguing sociological and cultural phenomenon. In the late 1970s and 1980s, punk rock was a key part of an entire youth subculture, one that expressed rebellion and anti-authoritarian nihilist ideology by spewing truly offensive language, wearing S&M-inspired leather clothing and studded jewelry, sporting spiked hair and safety pins through lips. Punk is a youth music created during and in response to the Reagan and Thatcher years. And I, for one, find it a fascinating counterpoint to the conservative establishment of its time. Why consume punk rock at all? Reason number two, for the defining insight it allows us. Such concepts as beauty and ugliness are relative They only mean something relative to each other. If everything was beautiful, we'd have no concept of what beauty is. Just so, we can only comprehend elegance relative to inelegance, professionalism relative to amateurism, civility relative to incivility, the significant relative to the banal. Listening to and watching the punk band Sex Pistols, for example, perform their version of God Save the Queen, offers us a full day's supply of ugliness, inelegance, amateurism, incivility, and banality. What a blessing! In three minutes and 19 seconds, these lovely lads give us all we require to perceive the remaining 23 hours, 56 minutes, and 41 seconds of our day as being relatively lovely. The print version of this podcast contains a link to that performance. While we're talking about that preeminent English punk band, the Sex Pistols, here's a third reason to listen. Whenever we feel badly about ourselves, all we require to raise our self-esteem is to contemplate the short and awful life of the Sex Pistols' bass player, Simon John Ritchie. 1957 to 1979, best known by his stage name as Sid Vicious. On February 1st, 1979, 42 years ago today, Sid Vicious was released on bail after having attacked Todd Smith, the brother of the singer Patti Smith, at a Scafish concert. Scafish, named for the band's leader, the lovely Jim Scafish, has the dubious distinction of being called Chicago's first punk rock band. According to the Sex Pistols singer, John Lydon, also known as Johnny Rotten, born 1956, it was none other than Mick Jagger who bailed Mr. Vicious out of jail and paid his subsequent legal costs, to which we might rightly ask, why, Mick? Why? A brief moment of empathy for Simon John Ritchie, who, in the words of his friend and bandmate, Johnny Rotten, was, quote, "...fucked from the beginning," unquote. Johnny Rotten continues, quote, "...the poor fucker was doomed. His mother was a registered heroin addict. So where do you go from there? When parents do that to you, it sets you off on such a fucking bad trip." Unquote. Inelegantly, but accurately put, Sid's father, a Buckingham Palace guard and part-time trombone player, abandoned Sid and his mother, Anne Beverly, when Sid was just a toddler. The two of them lived in London on the Welfare Dole, where Beverly sold drugs, not infrequently using her young son as a mule. She was a heroin addict who hooked her own son on smack when he was still a teenager. Johnny Rotten was correct. Simon slash Sid never had a chance. He was an utterly depraved adolescent. Aside from drugs, alcohol, and tobacco, his hobbies included strangling cats with his belt, cutting himself, and beating people with the bicycle chain he carried with him. Nice boy, he told an interviewer, quote, "'When I get annoyed over something,' I need an enemy, someone who's done something to me so that I can take it out on them and beat them to a pulp. And I always find I'm sitting in a room with a load of friends and I can't do anything to them, so I just go upstairs and smash a glass and cut myself. Then I feel better." He was capable of a level of degeneracy that set him apart even from the punk milieu where being a disgusting pig was a badge of honor. One such story, and one story only, with the understanding that these stories about Sid are legion. Even among punkers, Sid Vicious was notorious for his drug use. He was partying with fellow punker D.D. Ramone of the Ramones in London at a party that was freely offering speed, an injectable form of amphetamine. Quote, Ramon and Vicious went to the bathroom to find water to mix with the speed in order to be able to inject it. They found the bathroom completely covered in vomit from fellow partygoers. Unfazed, Vicious stuck his syringe into a toilet full of vomit and drew water from it. Without cooking or heating the contents of the needle, he injected himself with the mix of drug and someone else's vomit. Even to a Ramon, who were famous for their drug use. This was a jaw-dropping moment. Reportedly, Vicious remarked to the horrified Ramon, Man, where did you get this stuff? Vicious was capable of shocking even-hardened punk rockers with his levels of depravity. He played his first gig with the Sex Pistols as bassist on April 3, 1977. He was not quite... Twenty years old. He was asked to join the group not because he could play the bass, which he could not, and showed little inclination to learn. It's a testament to the primitiveness of the band's music that it really didn't matter. But because he fit the persona, he was punk rock skinny and an outlaw whose shocking behavior raised the band's punk cachet to an entirely new level. Said Sex Pistols manager Malcolm McLaren, quote, If Johnny Rotten is the voice of punk, then Vicious is the attitude." The critic Alan Jones described Sid Vicious as having "...the iconic punk look. Sid, on image alone, is what all punk rests on." It was to the advantage of the Sex Pistols' public persona that Sid behave as badly as possible we would observe that giving Sid Vicious an open-ended license to misbehave is like giving Kim Jong-un a fully operative nuclear arsenal. A really bad idea. Sid acquired a girlfriend in January 1977. Oh my God, what a girlfriend. Her name was Nancy Spungen. Despite the fact that she was just 18 years old when she met Sid, She had already lived two lifetimes worth of debauchery. Raised in a middle-class Jewish household in Philadelphia, she was a violent, emotionally disturbed child diagnosed with schizophrenia at 15. Expelled from public elementary school and later kicked out of college, the University of Colorado Boulder, her freshman year for stealing and storing stolen property in her dorm room, she moved to New York at 17, where she worked as a stripper and a prostitute. An addict and inveterate groupie, she followed the band The Heartbreakers to London, where she met and quickly shacked up with Sid. The London tabloids had a field day with Ms. Spungin. They called her Nauseating Nancy because of her constant public displays of drunkenness, lewdness, violence, and vile language. (laughs) Nice girl. Truly, Nancy and Sid were a match made in hell, a perfectly awful couple fully on par with Satan and 2020. When the Sex Pistols broke up in January 1978, Nancy became Sid's manager. The couple moved to New York City and into the Hotel Chelsea at 222 West 23rd Street between 7th and 8th Avenues. Registered as Mr. and Mrs. John Simon Ritchie, they occupied room 100 on the first floor. That was where sometime during the night of October 11, 12, Sid, in an alcohol and drug-induced stupor, stabbed Nancy in the abdomen with a five-inch hunting knife she had recently given him. She was found dead in the bathroom. Sid gave the police conflicting information. He told them that he and Nancy had fought and that, quote, I stabbed her, but I never meant to kill her, unquote. But he also told the police that he could not remember what happened and went so far as to suggest that during their argument, Nancy had actually fallen on the knife. Sid was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. He pled not guilty and was released on bail. Less than two months later, on December 9, 1978, Sid went to the Hurrah Dance Club at 36 West 62nd Street to hear the punk rock band Skafish perform. Mr. Vicious, who should have been grieving for Nancy, instead put the moves on a roadie named Tara. When Tara's boyfriend, Todd Smith, Patty Smith's brother, asked him to lay off, Sid broke a beer bottle across his face sending him to the hospital. Sid Vicious, who was still out on bail, was rearrested and got what he deserved, a one-way ticket to the nasty arsed prison on Rikers Island. And that's where he sat and slept and tried to avoid being raped and writhed in withdrawal for seven weeks while he detoxed. He was released on bail on February 1, 1979, 42 years ago today. That evening, a number of friends, what that they were, threw a welcome home party for Vicious, at which he was served his favorite repast. No, not Carolina Reaper peppers, but rather grade A heroin, fresh off the street. Coming off of detox, Sid should have been careful about his dosage, but he was not. He died sometime early in the morning of February 2nd, 1979, age 21, 42 years ago, tomorrow. Some folks claim that it wasn't an accidental overdose, but rather suicide. Others further claim that it was his mother, who was then living in New York as well, who injected Sid with the killing dose, knowing he'd never survive being sent back to prison. Really, who's to know? But suicide sounds about right. Sadly, his entire adult life, what there was of it, had in truth been one long, slow suicide. Thank you. To sample and download one, or all, of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at Music.com.